Stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We'll be uh, the uh, scripture reading will be from Acts, and if you did not bring a Bible or don't have one, there should be some black Bibles in front of you and the chairs in front of you. And we'll be reading Acts uh, chapter eighteen verses one through eleven. Acts chapter eighteen verses one through eleven. And before that, let's go ahead and go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your house this morning with other uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we pray this morning, we thank you for your, uh, your holy word, and ask that it would pierce our hearts, that you would convict us and teach us this morning, that you would make us uh, more into the image of Christ. We pray, God, that you would be with Pastor Mike as he comes to preach your word. We pray that you would also be with Pastor Adam as he, as he is preaching your word at Redemption Church, and we ask that you would fill both of them with your Holy Spirit, and help them to preach your word in spirit and in truth. Comfort them both as they preach. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Acts 18, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Seated. had some uh, excitement last night. Many of you know, probably all of you, does anyone know I'm not a mountain biker here? Um, I was on my uh, mountain bike ride late last night, finished around uh, 8.30. For those of you that know the trails, uh, I'm on uh, Manzanita Trail, and I'm going down the single track, and, and who's in front of me but a, a big brown bear. And, uh, and he was coming, walking toward me, and I'm riding toward him, so I stopped. It was a good idea to stop. So I stopped, and usually they just scurry off. They just take off into the woods. But I think this guy was kind of stubborn like me, and he's like, I want to go that way where I am, and I want to go that way where he was. So I'm just kind of standing there looking at this bear. He's about where the doors are to the sanctuary there. And I'm just looking at him, and he's, and he's not really moving. So... I don't necessarily recommend this, but this actually I've seen others do this. So I pick up a few rocks, 
And he, I got his attention when I picked up the rocks. And for those of you, I love animals. I didn't hit him. But I just, you know, threw the rocks near him. And he scurried on up, uh, up the hillside. And then I was able to go the way I wanted to go um, along the trail. But it was pretty exciting to see this guy uh, up close. He was big. I think he'd been eating, um, uh, visiting a lot of trash cans at the top of the canyon. He was, he was, uh, he was a pretty fat bear. But uh, anyway, this has nothing to do with my sermon at all. I just thought I'd tell you about an uh, exciting thing that happened uh, late, late last night. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Paul is writing here. I came to you, the believers in Corinth, the church in Corinth, in weakness and fear and with much trembling. This verse, as it turns out, is an astonishing verse to me in some ways. Because this verse is intended to be taken positively. Positively. Weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul is talking here about his first trip to Corinth. The first time that he went there and and how he felt. And so the reason this verse is astonishing to me, let me help you think through this. Why is this so astonishing to you? Let's suppose uh, that you were going to a city like uh, Corinth, uh, to contextualize it in America today, going to Vegas, okay? Some similarities between Vegas and Corinth. You're going to Vegas. You're going to be doing uh, some some work there. Joe read about Paul's first trip uh, to Corinth from Acts 18. He did some work there, some business work to provide for himself as a tent maker. But the main reason that you're going to Vegas, if we enter into the theoretical again, now the main reason you're going to Vegas is to share the gospel, and to establish a church there in Corinth. And you are going there, and you are going with weakness, and with fear, and with much trembling. Now, if you were going there, and you told me this, my first instinct, my gut response would be to help relieve you of the fear and of the trembling and of the weakness. Wouldn't that be, I mean, wouldn't that be most of our, our responses? To, to relieve you of this. I mean, that, 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 that's what I would do. And so the reason this verse is astonishing to me is because that's not, that's not the point here. That's not how one should respond. And we're going to see more of this as we look at this short passage today. Of, of, of why this is astonishing. And what I want to do is, uh, is, is move on our way of, of developing a theology of weakness, a New Testament or a Pauline theology of weakness. And I want to answer the question, is weakness sometimes a good thing for us 
as believers? And the answer, of course, is, is yes. But before we get into this passage in detail, uh, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord uh, to speak to us. Father in heaven, um, we love you. And weakness is something that all of us as human beings can certainly identify with. This experience of trembling and fear and weakness that Paul had as he went to Corinth. But Lord, as, as I saw the uh, expressions on faces out there, weakness is generally something that we want to get rid of. And even if we're feeling it, Lord, we often don't want others to see it in us. And so I ask now as we look at your word that you would speak to each one of us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the inerrant and inspired word of God. And I ask, Lord, that that you would move each of us from from where we were when we came in this morning to where you would have us be, that we would be growing more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at verses 1 through 5 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Let me begin at verse 1. It says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Testimony about God is the gospel. And Paul is describing the way that he came that first trip in Acts 18 that that Joe read. He did not come with eloquence, with wisdom, as he proclaimed the gospel. This verb, uh, proclaimed, is broader than just preaching. It includes preaching, what I'm doing now, and what Paul did in the various house churches in Corinth. But this this word proclaim is broader than that, and it would include uh, conversations uh, across the dinner table about the gospel or, uh, or at Starbucks or the equivalent that they had in, in Corinth. It would also include, uh, include preaching as, as Paul did. This same verb is used in 1 Corinthians 11. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's talking about proclamation of Jesus. Uh, including preaching, but, but more than that. So this, this relates to you and I. You don't have to be a preacher here to, to connect with what he's saying in verse 1. And what he's saying is, I didn't come in the customary way with eloquence or with superior wisdom. You see, for uh, you and I, we might go uh, for entertainment to a movie. Uh, that's my wife's favorite thing to do for date nights. We go to movies. She loves to go to movies. But back in the first century in Corinth, folks would often go to hear people speak, to hear these professionals speak with massive skills of rhetoric, uh, logic and rhetoric on display. And Paul is saying in verse 1, I did not come to you. Remember Acts 18? Remember that? When I first came to you, I didn't come that way. One uh, commentator writes this. He says, it was against a particular strain of Greco-Roman rhetoric that Paul sent forth his own statement of rhetorical style. The specific style which Paul opposed and disowned is described 
by this one commentator, as public display oratory. I didn't come that way. Uh, I, I don't have that. I don't want that. And that's not how I came to you. So how did he come? Look at verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is Paul's theory of proclamation. He didn't come the way that even people in those house churches would have expected a, a professional speaker to come. He, his theory and philosophy of proclaiming the word, whether it's in, in, a, in a formal sermon like I'm doing now, or whether it's across the table, was to be all about the gospel. I resolved to know nothing Nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he's using a a part for the whole here. He's not focusing exclusively on the death of Jesus, but on the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. This was my philosophy of rhetoric. This was my philosophy of life. This was my philosophy of speaking. I came to speak the gospel. Matthew Henry uh, says this. He says, Anyone that heard Paul preach found him to harp so continually on this string that he would say he knew nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Whatever other knowledge he had, this was the only knowledge he discovered and showed himself concerned to propagate among his hearers. I like verse 2. I especially like the beginning where he says, I resolved. How are you doing? Can you say verse 2? Step out. This isn't just relating to preaching. Any, anyone you're interacting with, can you say, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, everything else that I know is in a whole other category than the Gospel. He's not saying that he's not anti-knowledge here. He's not saying I, I, I shouldn't be expert in, in, in other areas, in, in tent making, for example. He's saying all of that is in such another category. But I love the words, I resolved. Because I hear behind that that he wasn't always there. I'm not always there. My heart is not always beating for the gospel in the way that it should. Are you like me? Are 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 you just like always on fire? Every interaction you have, you're thinking, how can I get the gospel out in this conversation at the gas station or at the restaurant? Is that how you are? It's hard to be like that. So I like those words, I resolved. I resolved to be like that to demonstrate the gospel in, in any way, to, and to share and to proclaim the gospel eventually. This was his philosophy. This, this, is what, this is what he was all about. Look at verse 3. We've already looked at it. Let's look at it again. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. So what's behind this? What's behind this statement? I think two things are behind this verse that astonishes me 
that's to be taken positively, not negatively. And the first thing is, verse 2 is behind it, the gospel. So his weakness and his fear and his trembling, one of the reasons for the weakness, for the, for the uh, freakness, sorry, you like that there, for the weakness and for the fear and for the trembling, one of the reasons for that is this incredible message that he's been entrusted to proclaim. So he's in reverence and awe, and, and he's unworthy, and he's viewing himself that way. He's not coming with this polished presentation that, that people are going to go, man, that guy's rhetoric is incredible. No. He's coming with this posture of humility before the gospel. And he's in trembling, and he's in fear, and, and, he's, and he's in weakness. But he's there, I think, for an- another reason. And that is Paul is not uh, so eloquent when he spoke. He, he, he's not someone that when people left went, man, you, I want to go, I need to get others to come and hear him because of, because of how he spoke. We, we have evidence of this uh, in, the new, in the New Testament. I'm smiling, this first one, I, there's not a lot of humor in the Bible, but I, I, I think this is, this is one of them. This is in Troas. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, Paul and, and, and Luke and, and others. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, the guy in the window, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Is, is, this, is this humor? What, 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 what is... <laughs> We're not sure, right? I mean, I think there's some humor here. Luke wrote this. Paul didn't write this. You know, he didn't make mention of this incident that actually happened. Uh, interesting that, you know, just a, a few things here. Uh, this is one of the first uh, times that they met on the, the first day of the week. And uh, because of the resurrection, the, the church began to meet on the first day of the week. And some, some think that they generally met in the evenings uh, because they had to work on Sunday morning. You know, we make this big thing about uh, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday. This is Sunday. They had to work in the morning. So they met in the evenings. There were many lamps in the upstairs room. And if you've read a a lot about church history and church meetings before electricity and all this, there would be lamps. So one of the gauges of the end of the meeting, this room's full of people, and there's not a lot of oxygen, so you want to sit by the window so that you can breathe. And the lamps are getting dimmer and dimmer. And this guy falls asleep and falls out of the window. I mean, this is just... So, so Paul, I think part of the reason he's trembling in fear is, is he can put people to sleep <laughs> while he's preaching. So it's mostly this awesome gospel. But he can send people down out the window <laughs> while, while, he's, while he's preaching. He was aware of that. Um, he was aware of that probably more than anyone else. Um, 
of his own deficiencies. And so he's trembling about sharing this gospel uh, with others. He had a reputation. Now these are Paul's words in 2 Corinthians. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Here's Paul's response to that. Notice his response is not, actually I'm a really good speaker. That's not his response. He says such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Paul is saying, I am what I write about. I'm a man of integrity. I'm a man of the Word. I'm a a man of the Gospel. And this is what I'm about. I am mighty in the Lord. So he is trembling and and has fear and has weakness uh, because of the uh, awesomeness of the Gospel and and because of of his, his his own limitations. He's aware of his own limitations. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So he he says some of the same things he's saying in verse 1. Again, it's not my logic, it's not my rhetoric, it's not my presentation, it's not my polish, but it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. How was the Spirit's power demonstrated in Paul's preaching? I think we should ask that question and we should answer that question. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ would emphasize miraculous healings here. And it probably should be emphasized to a degree. In fact, if we went on in that story, the guy that falls out the window, those of, many of you know that story, Paul goes down stairs and resuscitates this guy who was found dead. And he comes back to life. So certainly there were miraculous healings and other demonstrations of the Spirit's power in that way in Paul's preaching. And I don't want to diminish that And yet I think mostly what he's referring to here is what happened in Acts. Joe already read it. Let's look at it again. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Here's the power. Then Paul left the synagogue in Corinth and he went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So the power of God's Spirit shows up in Paul's preaching by people coming to faith. And a church is established in Corinth. You remember when I came, I didn't come like those guys that you would go see on a date night who who speak with this polished rhetoric. I didn't come that way. The Gospel has power. The Holy Spirit has power. And He worked through my preaching, making men and women and boys and girls and whole households new in Christ so that they would have joy everlasting and would live life the way God intended. 
So Paul is, is weak, and he's trembling, and he goes with fear to Corinth. And so what I want to do in, in the remainder of our time, we've looked at verses 1 through 5, our text for today. I want us now to, to talk about implications here of, of having a theology of weakness. Is weakness something that is good for us in the Christian life more than we might think? Um, So I want to begin uh, by saying uh, that the weakest moments of Jesus' life always display the power of God. The weakest moments of Jesus' life always display the power of God. And I can think of a variety of of moments of weakness in Jesus' life. Weakness and, and grief uh, are not the same thing, but there, there's some overlap, there's some relation there. And I think of Jesus' weakness when, uh, he, when Lazarus died and Jesus, and Jesus weeps. And, and the power of God is then demonstrated again in a miraculous um, resuscitation and Lazarus coming back to life. There is something about um, Jesus' weakness where the power of God is displayed. But the greatest example of of weakness and the power of God in Jesus' life is, of course, on the cross. And specifically, in Mark 15, as he is hanging there on the cross, the Bible says this, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, when the sun should have been shining, it is completely dark for three hours. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is at his weakest point, I would say here. Why have you forsaken me? Not merely the physical pain of the crucifixion, but the spiritual pain, the sins of the world, the wrath of God is being poured out on Him. He who knew no sin became sin in our behalf, and He is weak. At the very heart of the Gospel is weakness. Why have you forsaken Me? He cries out to His Father. It's it's hard to... It's hard to interpret that, those words, that cry. One uh, commentator uh, tries, he, he, he says this, the depths of the saying, the saying, why have you forsaken me, are too deep to be plumbed. But the least inadequate interpretations are those which find in it a sense of desolation in which Jesus felt the horror of sin so deeply that for a time the closeness of his communion with the Father was obscured. For a time it was, ex- it was obscured. But Sunday's coming, right? The resurrection. This, 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 was, this was a moment of, of mysterious separation, a moment of weakness, and the power of God is then displayed out of this weakness. So the weakest moments of Jesus' life always display the power of God. This is something that you and I should long for in our weak moments of life. Obviously, 
we're not dying on a cross. We're not redeeming the world. But through God's sovereign plan, he has allowed us all to have various aspects of weaknesses in our lives. And he wants to display his power out of that weakness. So the weakest moments of a a believer's life sometimes display the power of God. And so we shouldn't necessarily be so quick to try to get rid of that, which is my instinct if you're going to Vegas to, on a business trip, but to share the gospel and, and plant a church, to get rid of that weakness that you might have. should tremble before this, this message that we have of the gospel. So sometimes we display the power of God through our weakness in our lives. You see, worldly culture can strangle displays of God's love when the world looks down and looks negatively on weakness. The world, and probably many in Paul's audience, would look down on the way that he spoke. They did. We've read about it. There's evidence. They looked down on him. Out of that weakness, the gospel was lifted up. So how is it? This is where preaching has its limits. I don't know what weaknesses you have in your life. We all have them. I know mine. How is it that the power of God is to be displayed in the weaknesses in your life? I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would be at work right now in in showing you things that I couldn't speak about or know. I've seen God's power at work in weakness in a lot of ways uh, in, in His church. Some of you uh, know uh, a young man now. He's a man. I think of him as a boy. Um, his name's Luke Linka. Some of you know Luke. And one of the categories of people where we see weakness a lot are those with disabilities, whether it's physical disability, whether it's a cognitive or mental disability. In the church, we have folks who have disabilities who have, who have weakness, and it's perceived as weakness, and it's, it's sometimes looked down upon. And uh, we may pray for healing from uh, these sorts of things. And, and this, this young man who's in my mind uh, named Luke Linka was from our previous uh, congregation. And Luke had Down syndrome. And I just loved Luke. And Luke had the ability to disregard lots of things in worldly culture when it came to social relations. You know what I'm talking about? We have certain things that we do and we have certain things that we don't do, particularly as men. Um, We don't show affection to each other very well as men. You know, when's the last time you saw two men uh, say, I love you, to one another? Two men who love each other. But we, we don't say that, do we? I mean, we don't, we don't say that. We don't really show that. But Luke didn't care about that worldly, that worldly breakdown. And so, uh, so some of you I've told this story to before. So I, I'm preaching one Sunday, and I finish my sermon. And it's, you know, we're not there yet. Hang on, and bow your heads, and let's pray. So I'm at that moment, so we bow our heads. And, and I'm standing in the pulpit. My eyes are closed. My head's bowed. I'm praying. And all of a sudden, a person's next to me. Hugging me. He's just right there. Luke's right there, hugging me. 
Congregations' heads are bowed. Nobody even knew uh, until the prayer is over. Now, I'm not sure if Luke was like the guy by the window, <laughs> and he's so excited my sermon's over, and he's coming up. I mean, we've all been there, right? Like, let's get this sermon over. I'm not sure where Luke was. If that's where he was, or I don't know if he was tracking with me, but what I know is that Luke loved me. And he didn't care that it wasn't cool to walk up on the platform and hug the pastor during his prayer after his sermon. And he's just, he's just loving me. It's weakness that that love comes out of. And a disregard for worldly culture. It's a demonstration of God's power. We need a theology of weakness. Weakness and trembling and fear are sometimes good things as believers. So to know, to know the power of God in your weaknesses, uh, the believers must, uh, believers must uh, three things here. How do we see the power of God through our weaknesses? Number one, or letter A on the screen, we must treasure the gospel above everything the world has to offer. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So worldly things and worldly expectations of how we should act and how we shouldn't act can be done away with if the gospel is going to be lifted up, if God's love is going to be displayed, I'm, I'm going to disregard worldly culture and expectations. We've got to treasure the gospel above everything else. My friend Luke Linka, as a little boy, did that. The Apostle Paul did that in the way that he spoke and in the way that he communicated when he first went to Corinth. He didn't try to compete. With the, with the sermonators, with the great preachers of, of logic and rhetoric. It wasn't his thing. So we have to treasure the gospel. We have to believe that the removal of weaknesses are not always God's means of getting glory. My gut instinct is, let's get rid of it. Get rid of the weakness so you can go to Corinth in strength, so you can go to Vegas in strength. But Paul went trembling. And whole households came to know Christ. The removal of weaknesses are not always God's means of getting glory. Sometimes they are. But not always. We're talking about a theology of weakness this morning. 2 Corinthians 12. More theology of weakness texts here. Paul's writing, you're familiar with this, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations the Lord had shown him. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is is made perfect in weakness. Those are Jesus' words to Paul and to us this morning. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
So I'm not taking it away in this scenario. I'm not taking the thorn away, Paul. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. The fear and the trembling and the weakness is sometimes part of God's sovereign plan for you and me. And he's waiting for his power to be demonstrated out of that weakness. And so... Last uh, point here, point C. The greater the believer's acknowledged weakness, the more evident the Spirit's power of enabling grace. That's why verse 2 is so surprising to me. Because in our culture, the world wants to, wants to get rid of weakness in me. I don't want to be thought of or myself or others to think of me as weak or trembling or having fear. I want to get rid of that. But Paul just says it straight out in verse 2. He just says, I'm weak. I've got fear. I'm trembling. Partly because of the greatness of the gospel, but partly because of his own weaknesses in speaking and communication. In his personal presence. So we've got to acknowledge our weaknesses to one another. We need to be free with our weaknesses for a variety of reasons. One is so that the power of God can be displayed. Last part of this passage in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says that is why For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a broad range here. And when he says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, and in persecutions, and in difficulties, he's not... What's the word? A masochist. He, he, he doesn't, he's not instructing us to want pain, to want suffering. He's saying here that when God sovereignly allows this and divine power is displayed out of my weakness, God's get glory. And when he sovereignly says, no, I'm not going to take away the thorn, we, we say, okay. We, we don't long for the thorn. It's not his heart here. He's praying for the thorn to be gone. And the Lord says to him, and the Lord often says to us, I'm not taking the thorn away in this scenario. But I'm wanting to get glory. Because when you are weak, I am strong. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we all know we're weak. We have fears of all sorts. Lord, we pray that we would have the kinds of fears and weaknesses that tremble at the infinite power and beauty of the gospel and that you've chosen cracked pots like us and like Paul to be the distributors and the proclaimers of that gospel. Lord, we have other weaknesses, whether they're physical or emotional or social, intellectual. We have other weaknesses. 
Some of those, Lord, you'll get glory by healing us from them. But some of them, you're going to sovereignly keep with us so that you would get glory. Help us to be at rest, not only at rest, but help us to have the heart that Paul has regarding his weaknesses. And Lord, we're thankful that your word has, that you and your heart, and as we see in your word, that you have chosen by and large to use regular people, not superstars, to spread the gospel. So we ask that you would use us to demonstrate the gospel and to spread it. We ask that you'd use us this week right alongside our weaknesses. We ask it in Jesus' name.